0: And welcome on into Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron.
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. Lots to talk about this hour. First, we'll, later on, we'll be talking about the true story of the AR-15 rifle. A new book out today traces its unlikely origins by an unknown inventor to help U.S. soldiers to its place in 21st century politics and a symbol of mass shootings in modern America, there is a lot to talk about with the authors of American Gun, and we know you'll want to chime in. You can call us. The number is 888 477 9499. You can also email studio2 at
0: org. Later in this segment, we'll catch up on corruption charges against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez and his wife Nadine. They are accused of accepting bribes for influence, gold bars. Mm. Coats stuffed yeah. with cash, a luxury car, all among the evidence in a federal indictment. It's the senator's second indictment in just 10 years. We'll talk with longtime New Jersey political reporter Nancy Solomon about the case and if Menendez can survive politically.
1: Yeah. But first, breaking news and the police shooting of Eddie Irizarry, a judge has dismissed all charges against police officer Mark Dial. He is the Philadelphia police officer who shot and killed Irizarry while he was sitting in his car.
0: Municipal Court Judge Wendy Pugh ruled, and this was just moments ago, after a preliminary hearing, that prosecutors have not presented sufficient evidence to show that the shooting was a crime, that Dial was justified, and faced a threat to his safety. We're going to have more coverage yes. of this today on WHYY. We will have more details tomorrow on Studio 2, but for now... We're going to move on.
1: Yeah. A big breaking news story that we followed for two weeks, Avi, um, was all focused on Danilo Cavalcante's jailbreak and the hunt to recapture him. But while these types of escapes make headlines, the number of prisoners who actually escape in Pennsylvania is fairly low. Very interesting story from Spotlight PA reports that of the thousands of people incarcerated in Pennsylvania jails, only 14 actual escapes have taken place over the past eight years. And an actual escape is when a person breaks out and they get away. We've seen about 71 attempts in the state, though, between 2015 and 2022. If you recall, Cavalcante escaped while waiting transfer to a more secure state prison where he would serve his life sentence. Now, if we look at walkaways, that's where someone had an approved reason to leave the prison. And then just never, didn't come back. then yeah. come back.: yeah. Well, 557 walkaways, and they make up about 87 percent of all escapes, and that's over an eight-year period. But we see this and uh, this happen, and it makes a lot yeah. of headlines, yeah. but it is a, a very rare, and about 92 to 95 percent of those who escape are actually caught and brought back to prison.
0: I let, You brought the story to our attention this morning, Cherry, yeah. and it's the type of story that I really like. I think it's, mm-hmm. this is solid journalism by Spotlight PA because yep. it, there's a difference between you know, like what you're focused on mm-hmm. in sort of the pace of a news cycle. And then there's the broader context, which can get lost all the time. And one thing that this article really points out is that the the, the overall numbers of escapes yes. are really declining. And that is because of technology and facial recognition facial cameras re- everywhere. Security, yeah. Right. So, uh, it, of, of course, you should cover when something happens out of the ordinary. But this type of thing isn't ordinary. And it's worth keeping that in mind.
1: Yeah. Just so people won't get afraid and think that this could happen every day. Cause right. It doesn't. It's Very, very unlikely.
0: Um, another law enforcement type of story that we wanted to bring to folks attention. Uh, Billy Penn had a story about. The, the marketing campaign recruitment efforts by the Philadelphia Police Department to increase their ranks. You know, they have many more budgeted positions than they have actual mm-hmm. officers, and that's because it's been difficult for them to recruit people to the force. That is starting to change thanks to a big marketing push. Uh, City Council was behind this, people might remember. And it has resulted in a substantial increase in the number of applications submitted to the Police Academy mm-hmm. this year and in the size of this year's um, Uh, inductee class to the police academy. So there does seem to be some movement in the direction that people wanted to see. Still, there's a huge gap um, in the number of budgeted positions and the number of actual officers. But if you check out that story at billypen.com, you can see how some of the numbers have changed. The trend lines are different now.
1: For sure. Uh, By the way, 93 recruits inducted into the academy last week. That's the largest single class since 2018. Also million dollars that's how much City Council put up. Yep. The first time City Council had ever been behind this type of funding for a campaign, and the, one of the reasons why it, they say it might have worked um, is because it was shared across Philadelphia, Pennsylvania suburbs, parts of Delaware, New Jersey. Yep. It was broader, a much broader search. So, very good reporting by Billy Penn there.
0: And we should also shout out the Philadelphia Inquirer because yes. some of their reporting oh, yeah, matters yeah, yeah. here too, because. They had brought to light recently. They did, yeah. That there was an extraordinary, disproportionate number of Philadelphia police officers who were on some sort of injured leave,
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: there was certain certainly evidence to suggest that some people were exploiting these leave policies um, in order to basically get money for not working.
1: Yeah, and the
0: number of officers who are doing that has. declined significantly since that reporting. So that's also part of the equation here.
1: Yeah. Journalism. Journalism. And they had, you know, it was funny. um, Former Commissioner Ramsey called that the biggest scam going. Right. Years uh, ago. Years ago. And it had been, uh, you know, something they carried through. So um, great reporting there. By the way, got to shout out (laughs) Delaware. (laughs) Yeah, we got to get Delaware in the program. Come on, Today marks the 100th anniversary of chicken farming.
0: In Delaware. In the first state, yes. <laughs> Not the 100th period. Yeah. you have had chickens for more than 100 years. Yeah, just point that out. Yeah,
1: of <laughs> uh, chicken farming in De- Delaware. By, by the way, Sussex County alone has more chickens per square mile than any other place. In the United States. Bet you didn't know that, Avi. Not until this morning, I did not. <laughs> so I mean, nose. I knew there were a you lot. To be
0: fair, I knew there were a lot because I used to report in Delaware and you drive down to Sussex County, Southern Delaware. Yeah. And it's one chicken plant after another, chicken farm after another. It's it's very like, it's noticeable just to the eye.
1: Yeah. And, and by the way, in 1923, a Sussex farmer ordered 50 chickens, but received 500 instead. Oops. And uh, her name, Cecile Steele, the farmer, intended to grow them for eggs, but she shifted to grow them for meat and sold them for about $0.63 cents a pound, which is about $11 per pound today. So shout out for that history. It's, a super, bit of history lesson. it's yeah. super
0: interesting to think. Like, I would feel like most um, agricultural sectors in a state don't have like a distinct starting point. I know. But in this case, it does seem to be, at least the history that we're told, is that this one woman gets... A bad shipment, the, the, a fifty becomes a five hundred. Someone so what, adds a zero, to zero somewhere, yeah, and that which be, happens. and that became proof of concept as she was able to sell those for meat, and now it's the biggest industry down there.
1: Yeah. Speaking yeah. of birds, we just mm-hmm. want to point
0: out that uh, uh, the Eagles did win yesterday over the Buccaneers on Monday Night Football. They're now three and zero on the season, which is wow. great. I find this even more interesting though because the Eagles have been three and zero before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They won yesterday's game by the score of twenty five to eleven. That score, 25-11, has never happened before in NFL history. It yes. was the first ever time a game had ended 25-11. to 11. I know yes, this. And that
1: is an odd it's little a, number. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's an, an odd, odd exactly number. Because pairing. usually
0: there's these predictable chunks that NFL games sort of break into. Like s- multiples of seven are very common because that's how much a touchdown mm-hmm. is worth with an extra point. And uh, there's, this, there's this Twitter account or X account, whatever, um, that tracks... Whenever there is a new, unique score in NFL history, it's called Scorigami. There isn't much that's worth viewing on that website anymore, Mm -hmm. but that account is one of the few good things remaining. It's NFL underscore Scorigami. And anytime you get a new, unique score, they tweet out Scorigami. And that yesterday was Scorigami, 25 to 11.
1: Well, there you go. And the Eagles won. And the Eagles won. So that's all I care about. Go, go,
0: birds. <laughs> go, go, birds. So that uh, that score mm-hmm. has only happened once, which is actually fifty percent of Bob Menendez's indictments.
1: Oh, so yeah. let's trans- was that was that that, was, that was your transition. Okay, I'm, I tried. I, I, you I tried. did. You did. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, the three-term Democrat, is facing federal corruption charges. As Avi mentioned, this is his second indictment in about a decade. He allegedly accepted bribes from three businessmen and the Egyptian government for his political influence. His wife, Nadine, is also being charged. Some of the evidence in the indictment include gold bars, jackets stuffed with cash, a Mercedes-Benz convertible. Sounds like this stuff. The
0: movies. Yeah. And there's now been growing pressure in New Jersey for Menendez to step down. Uh, Congressman Andy Kim, South Jersey, Central Jersey, announced that he would challenge for Menendez's seat next year, 2024. So far, Senator Menendez has refused to step aside and is pushing back. Here he is at a press conference yesterday.
2: To those who have rushed to judgment, you have done so based on a limited set of facts framed by the prosecution to be as salacious as possible. Remember, prosecutors get it wrong sometimes. Sadly, I know that.
0: So does Nancy Solomon. She's been reporting on New Jersey politics for two decades and hosts Ask Governor Murphy, which you hear on WHYY. She joins us now on the line to give us the latest on the case and the political fallout. Nancy, welcome to Studio 2.
1: Well, oh, thanks for having me. So, Nancy, let's just start by digging into these allegations against Senator Menendez. What exactly are prosecutors accusing him of?
3: They're saying that he used his position on the Foreign Relations Committee, of which he is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to make a deal with Egypt, uh, the government of Egypt, that was Egypt uh, has long been able to buy arms from the United States, and some of those arm sales were suspended over questions of human rights violations in Egypt. And uh, Senator Menendez uh, basically met with the Egyptian officials and what the prosecutors allege is that he gave the Egyptian government the ability to buy arms from the United States in exchange for their preferential treatment for a New Jersey businessman uh, who had just started up a halal meat certification business. And apparently what transpired is that over the next, uh, that started in 2019, by the way, just a year after his um, hung jury mistrial Mm -hmm. for other bribery Mm -hmm. and corruption charges. And that the businessman then was able to corner the market uh, for all Egyptian uh, meat exports from the United States um, and then was able to pay off or bribe, allegedly, the senator and his wife. And
0: his wife is a key figure here, Mm -hmm. right, Nancy? She is the link to this this businessman, Will Hanna. Um, Explain, do we know how they know each other, how long they knew each other? And where exactly their relationship fits into this puzzle?
3: I don't know a whole lot about like the nature of their relationship and and, you know, how it is that they knew each other. They it said both, I believe, in the indictment and I believe uh, Menendez has said the senator has said that they knew each other um, dating before. Not that they were dating, but going back to right. before uh, the senator met his now wife. Mm-hmm. Um, they started, the two of them started dating in 2019. And the um, indictment alleges that very shortly after they started dating, uh, that Nadine introduced the senator to Will Hannah, and uh, that's where they proposed this idea that he would get some help with his halal meat business.
1: Yeah. And so let's, I I mean, I know um, Senator Menendez has spoken out, pushed back. We heard the clip of him, Um, but, but they found gold bars in his house, all sorts of money. Um, How did, what, what, what is the explanation around that that you've heard uh, thus far And, and what exactly did he get in exchange you know, uh, allegedly in exchange um, for providing this added influence.
3: Right. Well, let uh, let me try to remember to answer that in from both sides of the coin. Um, uh, You know, the Menendez answer is pretty quick. So why don't I start with that one? He says the reason that they found so much, you know, $480,000 in cash stuffed in envelopes around the house including as i think you mentioned at the top of this discussion in his jacket pocket with his name embroidered on the jacket um but that they they found all that cash senator menendez says because of his history of his parents having fled from Cuba after the Cuban revolution and being afraid of Castro so he felt like he needed to have a lot of cash on hand mm. and that that's what that's mm. what he said yesterday at his press conference prosecutors have laid out a pretty detailed uh case in their the, in the indictment in which they say that they found fingerprints on the envelopes holding the cash from uh, a New Jersey real estate developer who is there are three businessmen who are involved in um this case and have various ties to each other plus ties to menendez and um and so they found fingerprints of of uh one of the businessmen. they found fingerprints of the businessman's driver. Um, they lay out uh calls and text messages that mm-hmm. happen uh in, in very short order and t- time frames when let's say there's a meeting or a phone call to discuss something that menendez is gonna do uh and then there's the you know then the money is dropped off and there are text messages from uh Nadine Menendez, the wife, um, saying, you know, thank you so much, heart, 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 and mm, that kind of wow. thing. Like Um, and, uh, you know, or they have details of Nadine Menendez getting handed $15,000 in cash in the parking lot of a New Jersey restaurant, which is just, you know, so Jersey, um, as a down payment (laughs) for the Mercedes Benz convertible. So they lay out a pretty detailed case of like where all this money was coming from.
0: So you talk about details. And that is one thing that does seem to distinguish Mm -hmm. this case from the prior case against Menendez, which ended in a mistrial that involved a a wealthy eye doctor and a longtime friend of his named uh, Solomon Melgin. What's also different here, Nancy, it seems so far is the reaction from members of his own party. Some are standing by him, but Governor Phil Murphy and now Senator Cory Booker have joined the chorus of folks asking for the senator to step down. Why do you think there has been a different reaction this time around from members of his own party?
3: Yeah, I mean the the, the less cynical side of me would say, uh, this case is so much more serious. Um, than the than the case that that ended in a hung jury. I mean, which is not to say that that case wasn't serious, right? Um, and that there weren't like credible allegations made about uh, bribery. But it's the kind of bribery that I sadly I think Americans kind of accept these days. You know, the idea that somebody makes donations to your campaign takes you on vacations uh you fly on pl- jet planes um and you get all sorts of lavish gifts um and then you you know in this case menendez made a call um you know about a medicaid fraud issue that the guy was having right so that that's
0: the old case
1: but the that's new the case, case
0: yeah the new case seems yeah. a little more serious than that but you also said there was yeah. potentially a cynical explanation for why there's a different reaction right yeah. now with just okay. a minute left can you get to that
3: yes 2018, Chris Christie is still governor of New mm-hmm. Jersey. Yeah. He's a Republican. If Menendez had resigned, he would have, he could have appointed a Republican in the Senate, which, you know, obviously is a big issue for the Democrats. So they fell in lockstep behind him yeah. to support him in 2018. And now it's a very different story.
1: Yeah, with a Democratic, uh, you know, governor at 30 seconds. Got to ask you, Andy Kim throwing his hat in the ring already. Um, Your thoughts on that. Could there be others?
3: I think there could be others. It'll be interesting to see whether the, the power players in the Democratic Party and the party bosses get behind Andy Kim or whether they put somebody else up. Um, this is a very big seat. You know, there are only three statewide elected positions in New Jersey, two senators and a governor. Um, this is a very big prize. And so it'll be interesting to see how it shakes down. Andy Kim, totally credible, Mm -hmm. uh, candidate.
0: All right. That is Nancy Solomon, senior reporter who covers New Jersey for WNYC. Also the host of Ask Governor Murphy. Uh, Nancy, thanks so much for being with us on Studio Two today.
1: Thanks for having me. And coming up, the true story of the AR-15 rifle. Stick with us. Our phone lines, email open. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth,
3: long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
1: NPR. This is Studio Two. Welcome back. I'm Cherry Gregg.
0: I'm Avi wolfman Aaron, The AR-15 rifle may be the most famous weapon in the United States today. There are over 20 million of them across the country. Many are owned legally, used for hunting and sport, or frankly, because gun owners have the right to possess these weapons. They've also played a role in high-profile mass shootings used in half of the 10 deadliest shootings in modern U.S. history. They have caused devastating injuries and deaths in Las Vegas in 2017, Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, Parkland High School in 2018, Rob Elementary last year. And the list goes on,
1: but the rifle at the center of our gun safety debate has unique origins. Birthed by an amateur inventor in Southern California, who lacked formal education but had a knack for engineering. What began as an opportunity to give U.S. soldiers and their allies a Cold War edge, has become a symbol of death, destruction, and liberty. All of this is laid out in a new book by our next guest, Zusha Ellinson, and. Cameron McWerder are both national reporters for the Wall Street Journal and co authors of American Gun, the true story of the AR 15. And they join us now in Studio Two. Welcome to both of you.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank this you is so our much. publication day, so we're super excited to Absolutely. be here. Absolutely. And yeah. it,
0: it, it's, a, it's a triumph of a work. I mean, it's quite detailed. There's a ton of reporting that went into it. And you start with this reporting about the inventor. Eugene Stoner often just called Stoner Mm -hmm. interesting guy and usually origin stories for weapons it's like a big team of people and yeah maybe there's one person that gets a lot of the credit this story really seems like it's about one guy one eccentric but brilliant man maybe I'll start with you Zusha tell us about Eugene
4: Stoner Eugene Stoner is a fascinating character. He lived in Los Angeles. He worked in a machine shop making aircraft parts. But at night, every night, he would come home and go into his garage and tinker around with gun designs. Everywhere he was, in fact, he would be sketching out gun designs. They'd be at the restaurant, and he'd be writing little designs on the white tablecloths, and his wife would say, "Uh, don't do that. Don't (laughs) do that here. And, And he'd say, they'll wash it out. It's okay. He was a very gentle guy. He never swore or spanked his children. when he was really upset. He would say, "Boy, that frosts me yeah mm-hmm. and um, the thing is, he was a genius. I mean, he was a total genius, and he came up with a gun that someone who was trained in the dogmas of gun design who had probably gone to engineering school wouldn't have been able to think of and and that's It's a story that really hasn't been told until now. And and you, it says in the book, you lay
0: out that this obsession, Cam, uh, of his, was truly lifelong. I mean, from the moment when he's a child, he is experimenting <laughs> with blowing, blowing things up. Things up. Yeah, he's I mean, blowing things up. All I, mean, the time, I mean, talk yeah. uh, talk about that because that really does paint this pretty compelling picture of a guy who's really driven. It seemingly by nothing more than his own interest.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is in in so many ways. the story begins as a classic American story this guy is the inventor we all think of as gosh that's you know that's what America's all about you know the guy working in his garage to who you know didn't get the formal education didn't you know didn't uh didn't you know get all the didn't get a silver spoon in his mouth when he was born you know and he makes this device and then Eagerly tries to fix it and fix it and fix it and prove it and prove it and prove it. It's it really researching this book. I don't have an engineer's mind. I don't know if you guys do. All, I definitely don't. That's why I'm a journalist. <laughs> and to me, I really began to appreciate. I really did, became to appreciate that this is a guy who looked at. Any object, and thought, how can I make it better? And he became obsessed with, as we, as you pointed out, blowing things up. And he really looked at rifles and started to say, how can I make this a better rifle for for American soldiers?
1: And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about the brand new book came out today called the Amer- called American Gun: The True Story of the AR-15 with our authors, national reporters for the Wall Street Journal, Cameron Mech. McWerder and Zusha Ellenson, call us, participate in this conversation. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. So I want to put Stoner in the context of when he lived. Where was America (laughs) at the time when it comes to weaponry used for war and such that we needed a person like Stoner to create um what we're now talking about this AR15 talk about the time and his 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 mind at the time go right well, ahead well
2: the cold war was was flashing hot you know this is right after world war 2 he is starting he's working in aircraft uh factories using materials that hadn't been used before like aluminum mm-hmm. plat, hard plastics that could be used and he's saying why aren't why aren't we using these for guns and There was a real concern on the part of the US military as Cold War, these battles started to erupt across the world with communist insurgents using the AK-47, which you may have heard of, a a heavier gun, but certainly a reliable, sturdy weapon that insurgents were using everywhere. And American, some American military people started to really be concerned that we needed to get a weapon that could match that and could fire a lot of rounds. Take a lot of, you know, take take this gun, which was lighter, easier to shoot. I don't know if either of you have ever shot an AR-15 or other guns, but uh, heavier guns, you know, the traditional hunting rifle, you'll feel it in your shoulder. Mm-hmm. An AR-15 is a breeze to shoot. Mm-hmm. And, and that gave soldiers the ability to carry more ammunition to the field. Uh, whoever shoots the most lead in a battle usually wins. And this was the basic principles that that drove Stoner to create what he did. Yeah, the the
0: the AK forty seven looms over all of this. It's not just as a weapon, which in some ways it did seem better than what what America and its allies were using at a time, but but as a symbol, as well of of revolution around the world. And it seems on some level like the the military is looking for. It's Cold War rifle. It's symbol of what it's trying to accomplish in conflict. And there this was conflict. this
2: great struggle going on within the military yeah. Yeah. because here comes this startup company, you know, the Armalite, uh, this small company in Southern California that created the Air 15 was competing with, with the military, which had mm-hmm. produced a heavier weapon that they thought was great. But a lot of people within the military, high-ranking people in the military, thought this isn't going to cut it. Yep. And the AR fifteen really has to fight its way in to eventually become adopted.
1: And Zusha, can you talk about how the AR fifteen worked its way in? Because we're talking about bureaucracy, we're talking about um, a small little startup company, unknown inventor without all the credentials, having to push his way in to this to the Pentagon, basically.
4: Yeah. So Stoner is this kind of mad genius, right? He comes up with all these ideas. But he's really guileless, and he expects that if he makes the best gun, the military will choose it. But in fact, that's not how it goes at all. There's all these huge egos. There's politics involved. And as soon as a certain faction of the old-school military sees this rifle coming up, they're like, we have to crush that no matter what. And they rig tests. They shade results. They do all these very underhanded things that, that Stoner had never imagined. I mean, there's this one crazy story where he flies up to Alaska. They're shooting his gun in the middle of the winter there with all the snow. The guys have mittens on. And he they're all missing the target. And Stoner's alarmed. He's like, why are you guys missing the targets? He says, ceasefire, ceasefire. And he looks at the guns, and he realized that the sights that you use to aim have been badly misaligned with little bits of metal. And he suspects that they were sabotaged. So it was a very difficult road to get the military to adopt the rifle. We've all established that we
0: don't have engineering minds here, but <laughs> True. to the extent that you can, can you try to explain what made this weapon—I'll start with you, Zusha—so uh, revolutionary? I want to read a quote here from the book. The AR-15 shed traditions that had long-burdened gun design, such as the reliance on heavy wood and steel, and the bias toward large-caliber bullets for an infantry rifle— Though they didn't know it, the men at Armalite, which is Stoner's company, were about to blow away these weighted legacies with a puff of light gas and a few pieces of plastic and aluminum. From an engineering perspective, what made this weapon
4: so good? So the first thing is what it was made out of. As you just read there, rifles had for centuries been made out of wood, mainly black walnut wood and heavy steel. And that's very heavy, obviously. I mean, it was reliable, (laughs) but extremely heavy. Stoner was not confined by the past. He always was looking for something new. And he said, why don't I use aluminum, right? Airplanes are made out of aluminum. So he started making some of the heaviest parts out of aluminum. Other parts they made out of plastic and fiberglass. So that's to start with different materials. The second thing he did was redesign the interior of the gun, how it functioned. And what he did was he devised a really clever way to use the gas from mm-hmm. the exploding gunpowder to power parts in the gun and he eliminated a number of heavy metal parts in doing so making the rifle even lighter.
2: Mm. It's not a, it's not uh it's it's akin to electric vehicles, right? They're they have a lot less parts. Mm-hmm. And this is a gun that has less parts than the traditional rifles that the army had been using.
1: Yeah, can we talk about the bullet because and the way the bullet is propelled out of the the gun, because it's one of the reasons why it was so effective in war. Could you talk about that, Cam? Sure. Zusha, well, yeah. yeah. No, well, you take Zusha, it, man. you go ahead. All right. you
4: yeah, so the, the, there's a, a great misconception about the bullets that are fired out of the AR-15. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say this is a high-powered rifle. They always say that's not true. So this is a very tiny bullet. It's almost the size of a twenty two, which is like, you know, what kids are shooting squirrels mm-hmm. with. Um, But it's fired out of the Air 15 at a really, really high speed to maximize its injury potential, as they call it. And what happens is the bullet flies through the air, nose first, but when it hits the human body, it goes unstable very quickly. And because it goes unstable, it starts spiraling like a top, and it does a lot more damage than you would think such a small bullet could do.
0: Yeah, there's a quote here in the book, larger bullets— tended to punch straight through a human body, but the small bullet would go unstable faster and therefore create a larger wound cavity than you would normally expect. Eugene Stoner said that.
2: And so that's perfect if you're in combat. Yep. It also is horrible if it's shot, if you're shooting. I mean, we'll get into this later, but I mean, it's horrible. The same design principles that made it an excellent weapon for combat wreak havoc later.
1: yeah. And and I want to talk about that from the very beginning of the invention, the gun was extremely destructive and deadly to the human body. I think a, a Pentagon official called it, "quote, a killing." The it said its killing power is terrific. Um, can you talk about how they sort of figured this out? They they learned it very early, running tests, and they could see very quickly what it could do to a human body. Yeah.
2: Well, there's a whole there's a whole story where uh, the gun is taken to Viet to Vietnam, at, at South Vietnam, and it's given to Army Rangers there, South Vietnamese Army Rangers, and they use it in combat, and they send back these reports which end up at the Pentagon, just showing devastating impact of the gun and that it really had this incredible ability in in fighting against the Viet Cong, and uh, and so they start, so then the Army really embraces it and they start to really really start to say, this is a weapon we should be using as the war in Vietnam ramps up.
0: We have to take a short break. We're going to come back. We're speaking with Zusha Ellenson and Cameron McWhirter, the authors of a new book out today called American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15. Give us a call, 888-477-9499, email studio2 at WHYY.org, and stick with us.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We
3: bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman miderant We are talking with Wall Street Journal national reporters Zusha Ellenson and Cameron McWhirter Their new book, American Gun, the true story of the AR-15, is out today.
1: And I want to pick back up where we left off before the break, talking about the moment that the military, that all the inventors realized the killing power of the AR-15. You were talking about uh, it being tested in war. Could you pick up on that story?
2: Yeah, uh, and there's all this bureaucratic infighting that we were talking about. So eventually, the military adopts the M16 as a, as a weapon to start using in Vietnam.
0: Just to be clear, the M16, the AR-15, right? They're cousin weapons, right?
2: Well, um, you could go farther than that. that I'll, I'll bore you with a little technical stuff. Sure. So, so the military version of the, of the AR-15 is reclassified the M16. It's a gun that can fire semi-automatic mm-hmm. which is means that you have to pull the trigger every time the bullet fires and then automatic you just hold the trigger down and, and the entire magazine will fire will, will cycle out so the uh, soldiers are issued the 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 uh, the gun that can do both of those things mm-hmm. right so they uh, start to use it in Vietnam and there's some in early battles that show great success so they go to Colt which is the manufacturer of the gun and they ramp up production dramatically as American soldiers and Marines are being sent in large numbers to Vietnam. They made a technical committee in in the Pentagon made some technical changes to the gun, particularly regarding the ammunition propellant and they didn't really properly test it because Mm -hmm. the war was on, you know, we're in a war and they weren't soldiers and Marines weren't given the proper cleaning equipment. They weren't properly trained to how much you had to clean this weapon and they, The gun starts jamming in combat, Mm -hmm. and we have some horrifying stories of soldiers
1: dying, yeah,
2: and Marines waking up in being attacked, and their gun jams over and over again. Uh, I actually, we have a a, someone in the book who, who literally could only the the way he used his M16 to kill an enemy was by punching it through the person's skull because Mm -hmm. the the gun Mm -hmm. wouldn't shoot. I mean, it's pretty horrifying.
0: It starts off as this triumph of yes. the outsider over the bureaucracy but these bureaucratic sort of ch- changes along the way for the purpose of expediency during a war end up in some ways undermining the weapon. Right. And mm-hmm. the
2: military tries to and we found this in records that we were looking into tries to keep this bad news suppressed yep. but family you know their soldiers and marines are writing home to their families saying my god my gun isn't working. Yeah.
1: And if you are just tuning in, we're speaking with the authors of American Gun, the true story of the AR-15, which came out today. The authors are Cameron McWhirter and Zusha Ellenson. And we have a caller um, who has a lot of experience with AR-15s who wants to to speak with us. Rick, you are on Studio 2. What's your question or comment?
2: Well, my comment is I lived in Central America in high security for a long time. And, you know, the name assault rifle was coined by one Adolf Hitler because they had an MP44 in 1944, the first assault rifle. But the AR-15, why does the Army like it for our soldiers? Because a soldier can carry 200 rounds of that Mm. easy, and the rifle is light, and it's very efficient. I will say, I will correct you on one thing. Our military, M-16s, are now on, on full automatic. They fire only three shots. They yeah. do not go to full. Uh, and
0: they do get to that actually in the book, Rick. Yeah. And I should you, that's a that's yeah. a correct point. Mm-hmm. There, have yeah. there have been modifications. Yeah, there have been modifications
2: over time. The three yep. round burst uh, is a, is something that was added to some of those guns late in later versions. To but, point out, uh, importantly, uh, Eugene Stoner hated. The three-round burst. <laughs> yeah. He hated it.
0: Yeah, and in fact, I believe his funeral right told them yeah. that they had to get rid of the three yeah. of them. Yeah, he hated. That's a whole funeral. other story. But uh, thank you so much for the comment, Rick.
2: And Rick uh, is right. Yeah. You know, the we could have a whole discussion about the term assault rifle, but yeah, the Nazis uh, created a weapon that translates as sort of storm rifle, and that yeah. was translated by American forces as assault rifle
0: now there's here's a question here from alex um that you do address in the book mm-hmm. alex, a lot of people think the ar and ar-15 does stand for assault rifle it does, it does not, not yeah. um, alex wants to know what the ar and ar-15 stands for and i think it's an interesting question i'll, I'll pose it to you zusha because almost everyone is wrong about what ar actually stands mm-hmm. for and it shows how this debate around the gun has become so unmoored from its own history So maybe we'll use this as a transition point. Zusha, what
4: does AR actually stand for? I could not have said it better, Avi. I mean, (laughs) as we looked into the story, we just found so many things that we never knew and that people have been arguing about for decades. And one is, what does AR stand for? So um, gun control activists will often say it stands for assault rifle. It does not. But on the other side, when um, gun rights activists argue against them, they say it stands for Armalite rifle. That is also not true. It stands for either Armalite, just the name of the company, and then 15 is the 15th creation of the company, or as Stoner's daughter says, it stands for Armalite Research. There's two different accounts. It's amazing that there isn't even
0: really one answer to that question. It just shows you so much about this gun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I want to jump down to sort of the uh, introduction of the AR 15 to civilians, and um, sort of the, and then we'll get to the politics of that because. One of the things that fascinated me about when I read this book is that true gun enthusiasts hated the AR-15. They gave it the finger, and they looked down on it And um, when it became available to civilians. And then all of a sudden, now it's popular. What was the original feeling of gun enthusiasts when it comes to that rifle, and how did it change? What changed it?
2: Well, at first... You know, Colt was making this weapon for the military, so they got these great, huge military contracts. But then they would have some downtime at their factory, and they would make they made a civilian version, which only had five rounds, and they marketed it to hunters who would go off into the wilderness or people who wanted to shoot varmints. It was it was a weird gun for the traditional gun owner to see mm-hmm. because it, because as we've described, it's it doesn't look like your normal rifle. It's made out of plastic and aluminum. Hunters in America were were used to traditional, big heavy guns where they fire one shot and they bring down a deer. You wouldn't want to shoot a deer with uh, this the two two three round of an AR fifteen. It just wouldn't be, make sense. And so um, it really becomes this gun that that uh, that yeah. People, like you said, people really hated it. On top of that, all these soldiers who had gone to, and Marines who had gone to Vietnam come back. They hate that gun because yeah. Of, yeah. of the problems that it had. Yeah. So they know they don't want to see it either. So uh, it, when in gun shows, when when people start to when smaller manufacturers start to make the gun mm-hmm. and produce it and go to gun shows, pe- like you said, people are giving them a finger, yelling at them. And,
1: and one of the things that was interesting to me was that um, as it transitioned, um, you had Black Panthers using it, you had white nationalists using it, you had like fringy folks and edgy people using this rifle, um, when did it sort of switch over to become something more popular? So the seeds,
4: yeah, the seeds of that are really in the 1994 federal assault weapons ban. So at that time, you know, crime was high in the U.S. People are concerned about gun violence, and Congress passed a number of gun control measures, including this assault weapons ban and they included the ar-15 almost as an afterthought they were more focused on ak-47s mac 10s all these guns we know from movies from that time and but what happened when they included the ar-15 is that people who own this gun they had, they had owned it because they're collectors because they like to shoot it. all of a sudden it became a political symbol they were yeah. like you can't take my gun you know bill clinton why are you telling me what kind of gun i can't can and can't have and so that was the first thing that turned it in turned it much more popular than it ever had been. In fact, there were more AR-15s made during the 10-year federal assault weapons ban than there were in the 30 years before that, which
0: is amazing. I want to read a fascinating quote in the book from Barry Goldwater, no less an arch-conservative than Barry Goldwater, who says of the AR-15, this is many years before that, there's no need for it, they have no place in anybody's arsenal. Mm-hmm. If any SOB can't hit a deer with one shot, then he ought to quit shooting." It starts off as a symbol of almost Mm anti-masculinity and is transformed through marketing and political coincidence, it seems, to the ultimate
2: symbol of masculinity. Can you elaborate a little more on that, Cam? Yeah, uh, that is a huge arc Mm -hmm. in the book, of course, is that this gun slowly becomes this symbol of Second Amendment rights and machismo when, in fact, it's a gun that's really easy to shoot and really light and mm-hmm. shoots a small bullet. But the that transformation begins, as Zusha said, with the assault weapons ban, and it becomes this political f- chew toy that there are everybody's arguing over. And then we have 9-11, in which suddenly this gun that had been despised by, certainly by Vietnam veterans and by traditional hunters, suddenly everyone in america is seeing our soldiers going into combat with yep. this rifle mm-hmm. versions of this rifle they're standing at our airports guarding us uh, with this rifle they're standing at you know the, at the, where the towers fell so it becomes this very patriotic symbol uh, the gun companies lean heavily into that when in 2004 after the 10 year uh, if the gun is the gun ban is the assault weapons ban is sunsetted sales take off, yeah. and the gun companies are, are right there ready to um, to make a lot of money off of it. it. Because in part, as we said from the very beginning, it's easy to put together, it's light, the parts are pretty easy to put together, it's cheap. The it's margins relative, are huge. And the margins are huge. Yeah.
1: I wanna talk about the assault weapons ban that passed. It had a sunset clause, uh, only worked for 10 years. Why, talk about why it was so ineffective um, and then compare that to what they did in Australia and it worked over there in Zusha
4: right so let's start with Australia they banned a whole class of semi-automatic rifles that's any kind of rifle you can shoot one bullet with one trigger pull and they just said we're getting rid of these types of guns and there's some exceptions but mainly they got rid of all of them in the US there's much stronger gun rights groups there's the second amendment and so the senators who wrote this bill felt at the time they couldn't do something so dramatic. And so they sort of nibbled around the edges and they tried to define this sort of nebulous assault we- weapon by the way they looked, less by their function. Mm-hmm. And so the gun makers easily got around this um, assault weapons ban. You know, the next day they were figuring out how to take off this piece, how to take off this piece and still produce AR-15s. The one big difference is you couldn't sell magazines with more than 10 rounds at the time, but there were tons of large magazines floating around the country. It was not hard to get one. Um, Certainly scholars have debated whether it was effective or not. Uh, You know, a lot of the research shows that it didn't do much in the way of curbing gun violence or mass shootings.
2: Or certainly sales of the ar fifteen. Yeah,
0: absolutely, um, and that there's there's no debating that part. Yeah. Yeah. Email from Anya, uh, I want to bring this in. Why are you elevating a book that glorifies guns? I am listening to you mm-hmm. say that the rifle was so great because it was great in combat. You do realize that in combat also means destroying human lives in horrific ways, right? Um, that's an email from Anya, and I will say before I ask my question, on top of that, I wouldn't say this, this glorifies, glorifies the gun no. uh, because, and we only have a few minutes left, there are excruciating details about mm-hmm. several mass shootings people who died and the people who survived with horrible injuries. And I want to give you a chance, um, uh, to Zusha, to, to tell at least one of those stories, um, because they all start on such normal days, yeah. and they end yeah. so horrifically.
4: Sure. I mean, one of the big reasons we wrote this book is because Cam and I are national reporters. We cover mass shootings all the time, and we really felt that no one was paying attention to the people who survived these atrocities. I mean after the news vans leave they're left to sort of struggle with their physical and spiritual wounds that really take a long time to heal. One woman that I got to know well was Valerie Callis Weber and she survived the San Bernardino shooting. She was at an office, you know, holiday party, how how mundane, right? Wow. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, two shooters break in and she gets shot once in the uh in the shoulder and once in the pelvis. And we detail her story, which is just, um, yeah, it's very grim, but also inspiring. She undergoes 60 surgeries. Mm -hmm. She undergoes thousands of hours of physical therapy just to get her hand to work again, just so she can walk again. Um, And I remember the thing she said to me, you know, she was really struggling, and she said, I just have to take this on as a full-time job. And so her full-time job for years has been recovery from the wounds caused by the AR-15. Mm.
1: Yeah, and I want to mention this comment from Tim who says, but isn't this always a story with a powerful invention? Think atomic bomb. Wartime capabilities beyond imagination. Now utter destruction. I, th-
2: I think that's a great point. And we start with a, an epigraph from Oppenheimer. And the reason we did that was because th- that's exactly what this is. This is a story of a of an invention for a purpose, yep. a specific purpose. And it, and it, as soon as the inventor creates it, he he loses control of it. And it becomes the story of how invention gets away from the inventor and how society ultimately has to come to grips with the impact of that invention.
0: Just a minute left. I want to bring in this email from Margaret. Can you address how citizens can combat the proliferation of these weapons? One thing I actually took away from this book, and maybe I'll direct this to you, Zusha, is that maybe there is a way where you don't actually legislate the weapon, Mm -hmm. but you legislate other things that reduce the risk of these particular types of mass casualty events. Can you touch briefly, 45 seconds, on some potential solutions here?
4: Absolutely. I think one of the things we all need to think about is what is the problem we're trying to solve. And in this book, we're talking specifically about mass shootings. And one of the remarkable and chilling facts is that most mass shooters walk into a gun store and buy their guns legally. This is not like other types of crimes where people are getting their guns off the street, wherever. So we need to think about how can we stop people who usually broadcast their intent online or in messages to friends from going into gun stores and legally buying AR-15s. And there have been some attempts at that, red flag laws, so forth. But that's the question we really need to ask ourselves. Yeah, yeah.
1: And We're going to have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. We've been speaking with Wall Street Journal national reporters Zusha Ellenson and Cameron McWhirter. Their new book, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15, out today. Congratulations on your book.
0: Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. Our show is produced by Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. For more Studio 2, head on over to WHYY.org or download us wherever you get your podcasts. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia,
1: I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us today.